Uh, this is Paul Schneiderman today on the 80th edition of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. I have with my very special guest, uh, Steve Rabel. Steve is an esteemed former NFL player, a longtime Seahawks radio broadcaster, and recently Steve retired as a Channel 7 broadcaster in Seattle. He had a long career at KIRO. Uh, before I go further with this interview with Steve Rabel, I recognize the engineer today, Lucius Tenebris. Uh, our, my station, Rainier Avenue Radio, is based in Seattle. We're an online station. We have a lot of sports shows, lifestyle shows, political shows, music shows. We have an all-new sports lineup, uh, including my show at 9 p.m. on Rainier Avenue Radio. My sports and stuff shows been around now since 2017, having a lot of fun. Most of my interviews are now on YouTube. They're on Mixcloud and continuing to get them up on the Rainier Avenue Radio website and, and my website. Um, as mentioned, Steve Rabel does not need a longer introduction. With the original Seahawks, played for the Hawks in the 1970s, early 1980s. Longtime Seahawks radio voice. Steve recently retired as a long, as a Emmy Award-winning uh, broadcast journalist at Cairo. Steve has been uh, a very big part of the Seattle Northwest community for many, many years. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for coming on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hey, did you notice I mentioned this is the 80th edition? Uh, I think one of your former teammates, when I know Steve Largent, had that number. If I waited a few more shows, I would have had you on the 83rd edition. You're your you're a former number. If you played your cards right, you might have gotten Largent on instead of me, and then you'd have really had a great show. Um, um, so there's no story. <laughs> yeah, my old, uh, my old teammate, uh, great guy. Uh, unfortunately, like most people, we don't get a chance to see all of our friends these days because of COVID and, and all the rest, but, uh, he's, he's doing well. He's, uh, he's back in Tulsa and retired like so many of us are. And, uh, every so often he comes out and we get a chance to have some lunch and, uh, and chat over old time. So it's, it's great always to talk to Steve. Well, maybe I can bid on an auction lunch with, uh, Steve Rabel and Steve Argent one day. <laughs> Well, now that would be uh, that that might be worth some money. I don't know if we'd allow anybody else outside the family to to come into one of those lunches. That's a pretty pretty quiet time for us. Absolutely, totally understand. I would not intrude. I just thought of the 80th edition uh, today with Steve Largent's number a couple of minutes ago. Well, Steve, you grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. You're known very much these days as a, as a Seattle and Pacific Northwest guy, but you are a Kentucky native. Can you share with us a little bit what growing up in Kentucky was like, and how did you get the football bug as a young youngster growing up? Well, it was uh, Louisville was a great place to grow up. I don't know if I could live there at this point in my life, uh, but I basically, um, you know, my my parents, my dad was born and raised there, and he was a. Uh, um, an educator. He was a music uh, superintendent for the public schools in Louisville and Jefferson County, Kentucky, and and he was also a musician. So he uh, grew up playing in big bands and the symphony orchestra and every big show that came to town from Bob Hope to the Jackson Five. He played in the backup band and just a terrific, uh, just a terrific uh, uh, musician. My mom was a homemaker um, and. You know, we we had a great life. Um, we grew up and went to uh, Catholic grade schools, and then uh, my brother and I both went to an all boys Catholic high school, uh, Trinity High School in Louisville. Um, huge football powerhouse, frankly, uh, in the last 25 years. And then they were just starting. We were just starting to be a football powerhouse when I uh, was playing there. But I got the bug, I guess, like most kids, when I was in fourth or fifth grade. I started playing little league football in the fifth grade, and. And um, uh, I used to watch, you know, in those days, there was one game on a weekend. 
and uh, and that was on CBS. Uh, in fact, I don't think NBC. Well, NBC might have had the uh, AFL games on at that point. But in the mid '60s, early '60s, it was one game on CBS, and it was uh, almost always in our part of the country. It was the Packers, and so the Packers were my favorite team growing up. And uh, I always wanted to be either Jimmy Taylor or Boyd Dowler or Wood. Yeah. Uh, I knew all those guys, uh, knew knew their names. And so I started playing Little League football, and then uh, when I got to high school, I was a little bit small, actually. Uh, so I ran cross-country and track and played basketball, and then I grew like a weed after my sophomore year. And uh, the head coach of the football team said, okay, now it's time for you to come out for football. So I did, and I played my last two years and won the state championship in, in track and field in the 100-yard dash as well and got a scholarship to college and went off to Georgia Tech. Yeah, I, it's fun to hear about your parents a little bit, Steve, and in, uh, in sharing about your growing up in Louisville and how you got the football bug. Steve, you had a, a good career for the Seahawks. You were an original Seahawk on that 1976 expansion team. And I'm a Seattle kid that grew up in Seattle, so I remember your, your playing days uh, fairly well, though I was really young at the time. Steve, if you had to pick one memory, one memory of your Seahawks playing days, what memory stands out? Oh, wow. Well, I, I always say that if you can remember all your highlights, you didn't have enough. So uh, that that's pretty much the case for me. You know, I mean, I, I had some I had some good games. I had a couple of big games. Um, uh, we almost my rookie year in 1976, we went back to Minneapolis and played the Vikings in 1976, who ended up going to the Super Bowl that year. Our head coach was Jack Patera, and he had been a Vikings assistant under Bud Grant, so he knew uh, the Vikings system. He knew what they liked to do, and so he knew how to counterpunch. And uh, he knew that their defensive backs were, were steady but not great. And so early in the game, he just sent me on a deep fly pattern, and I caught an 80-yard touchdown pass uh, in that game and caught a couple of other passes. We ended up losing uh, at the very end of the game. It was a shame because we, we had them on the ropes, the Vikings on the ropes the whole game. So that was a that was a pretty good memory. I, I caught a big touchdown against the Raiders in, I think it was 1978, down in Oakland. And uh, the only reason I remember that game specifically is because of what I don't remember. I got knocked unconscious late in the game. We were driving for the winning score against the Raiders, who also that year went to the Super Bowl. But we seemed to have the Raiders' number. And, of course, they had Kenny Stabler and Cliff Branch and Freddie Bolitnikoff and all those guys playing for them at the time. And um, I caught a, I don't know, a 35 or 40-yard touchdown pass. And then late in the game, uh, Z-Man uh, Zorn, Jim Zorn, uh, threw a crossing route to me, and it was a touch behind me. I reached back, and that was the last thing I remember because Jack Tatum knocked me absolutely unconscious uh, in the middle of the field, one of several concussions, uh, I'm afraid to say, that I had in my football career. And so uh, they kind of got me off to the sidelines. I don't remember the end of the game which turned out Efren Herrera kicked the game-winning field goal with about 12 seconds left, and we beat the Raiders in Oakland. And the reason that weekend is really memorable for me, Paul, is because I came back home with the team. Um, I went right to the hospital. They took me to Swedish and plugged me into all the you know wires in my head to see how bad the concussion was. So I spent the night in the hospital. And on Monday evening, I was scheduled to go meet some friends uh, at their home in Bellevue for uh, for dinner. And these were people not in, in football. They were in, in radio business, as a matter of fact. And so, I, you know, I didn't feel very good. I had a headache, but I had committed to going. So I went. And as it turned out, they had also invited one 
other single person, uh, a young lady, and we were the only two single people there. And so we met that night and we chatted a little bit and we've now been married for 39 years. That's so, a great story. Oh, that's a great story. That that's that's a um, one of the best reasons I can think of for when you don't feel like doing something, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And so I met Sharon that night and we got married uh, a year and a half later. And uh, and here we are 39 years later. Love it, Steve. In, in a roundabout way, you, you can thank the assassin, Jack Tatum, for helping you meet your wife, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, 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 I blamed it on brain damage, but uh, that, that doesn't fly. No, it was, it was out and out. As soon as I saw her, I, I kind of knew that this was the one. So, Great story. Uh, yeah, it's been, it's, it's been terrific. And then, you know, she was with me through the end of my football career, too. So she saw some really tough days. Um, I got a collapsed lung in 1981 during preseason and uh, spent some time in the hospital and missed a few games. And, and uh, so, you know, she knew that, uh, I, you know, I was probably never going to be a Steve Largent. And, and uh, uh, you know, the, when we had some opportunities come along in radio and television, we decided to make the most of them. Great, great story. Great, great. Uh, kind of has a Hollywood aspect to it. Paul Schneiderman on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with the great uh, broadcaster Steve Rabel. Steve, you've had you've interviewed so many interesting people in your work as a sportscaster and in your work at, at Cairo for all those years as, a, as an anchorman. Um, you've had a chance to interview, I believe, a couple presidents, including George W. Bush and President Obama. What were some things that you picked up in your interactions with those two presidents that uh, kind of stood out? Like maybe little teeny things. But what what did you uh, what were your impressions of those two presidents when you had a chance to meet them and interview them? Well, it was interesting. Yeah, first of all, it was George H.W., so it was the dad, not the yeah. son, uh, and and uh, and he was a genuinely nice person. And uh, he didn't do any in, sit-down interviews that day, as I remember individually, but because we were doing a big banquet a couple of nights later, and uh, it was to raise money uh, for uh, the Lenny Wilkins uh, Foundation, and I was the MC of that event. Uh, he agreed to do it and to talk about uh, uh, charity work and all that, and it was it was really very very nice interview and and so that was uh, kind of the parameters we had on that one. I interviewed Barack Obama at the White House, which probably was is one of the highlights. I also had a chance to interview Jimmy Carter after uh, his time as president, and and he was as fascinating a person as I I think I've ever interviewed. Um, he had wow. just written a book. You know, he was an expert on the Middle East, and, and he had paved the way for a Middle East peace process that they're still trying to hammer out today. But right. he had it going, and he wrote a couple of books on the subject, and one of them was called The Blood of Abraham. And it was talking about the history of the Middle East and why it was so difficult to, uh, to broker a peace plan. And so he came through Seattle, and they gave me a full half hour of our noon newscast. So I had two 15-minute segments to, to interview him live. And it was just fascinating to me. I don't remember much about it other than we did talk about the book, obviously. But, you know, I wanted to talk to him about what everybody else wanted to talk about. And that was, you know, a one-term president and everything that could have gone wrong for you at the end of your presidency did go wrong. And, you know, what are your regrets and all those things. But it was – he just could not have been more cordial and uh, and and answered every question and was uh, very authoritative. I mean, he's a very, very smart man. Jimmy Carter. He may not have been the greatest president, but he sure was uh, an intelligent guy and compassionate. And, you know, we didn't need to hear him talk about it to know 
Uh, all you have to do is look at his, uh, his life of giving back and his Habitat for Humanity work that he does still at, what, 90 years old or something. So a remarkable man. So I've had some opportunities to interview some really interesting, smart people, wonderful authors, um, um, you know, over the years. And, and uh, I couldn't I can't even begin to think of all of them, but uh, have had some great opportunities. When I was starting out, I was still playing football when I was when I started doing some radio and television, uh, mostly at Cairo. Uh, and I had a chance to do a lot of interviews. And Pat Summerall one night was was out to dinner with friends. It was on a Saturday night, and I was filling in. I don't know if you remember the name Wayne Cody. Of course, Wayne was yeah the big the biggest name in sports in so many ways uh, here in Seattle for so many years. And he had a show called Sportsline, which was kind of the original sports talk show here in Seattle. Right. And I would fill in for him in the off season on Saturday nights. And so um, the producer. Uh, was able to get a hold of, of Pat Summerall, and he said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm going to be at a dinner with some friends, but I will come out to the to – the, uh, and this was at a restaurant down in, uh, down in California, and he said, but I'll come out to the, uh, to the maitre d' stand, and I'll talk for five minutes if that's okay. And, and, the, and I said, fabulous. So he came out. He started talking. 25 minutes later, we're still out there talking, and I kept saying, you know, Pat, I know you have to go, and he's, no, I got time. Let's keep talking. So it was just a treat for me because there was a guy who was a former player back in the old days with, with the New York Giants, uh, and, uh, and then he was the, the number one uh, broadcaster of professional football uh, in the league at the time, and he and, uh, he and John Madden, of course, working together were, were just a great pair. So I've had some great opportunities to talk to people like him and Merlin Olson and, and Charlie Jones back in the day, Vern Lundquist. Those guys have just been invaluable for me, not only to interview them, but also to ask advice uh, for what to do in this business and how to, how to be a professional and how to get better and how to prepare and all those things. So I, I can't tell you how many great people I have had a chance to talk to and have, have uh, had a, a great influence on my career. Just great stories. It's just so fun to listen to you talk about having a chance to chat with three presidents and famous broadcasters like, like Pat Summerall. I mean, I'm so jealous and envious just, just hearing you uh, chat. Paul Schneider again, sports and stuff with uh, Wayne Avenue with Steve Rabel. You know, that, you mentioned that book by Jimmy Carter, The Blood of Abraham. I actually had that book at home. It's actually a very good book by the Middle East. So it's, uh, yes, it is. It is. It's, it's I, and I, I, tell, I tell anybody who's listening that if you want to get a history lesson, read that book. And, uh, and then you'll have a good sense for why things are still uh, in such a, a mess today after all these years. Very good book by President Carter. Steve, you know, I've asked this question or a similar question a bunch of former guests, and I'll give you a couple of answers. I'd love to get your answer to this question. Uh, Dave Grosby answered Ford Merriweather. Dave Sims, the Mariners broadcaster, answered Seti Kofax. Softy Mahler answered Tiger Woods. Ian Furness. Furness indicated the um, Russell Wilson. Percy Allen of the Seattle Times mentioned Mike Tyson. Steve Kelly mentioned Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Steve, if you could have an extended conversation or interview with one living sports figure, whether it's a player or a general manager or whatever, who would it be? Wow, it's a great question. I'll tell you who it would be, uh, who I would really like to have the interview with. I know he wouldn't do it. Uh, but I would love to, to talk to him for an extended period of time, and that's Bill Russell. Um, I think Bill Russell is one of the one of the truly 
unique people of our time, uh, of the past generation. He is, uh, you know, and he lives here. He lives over on Mercer Island for heaven's sake. Right, right. Uh, and I've been, to, I've actually been to dinner with him. Uh, and he is, he is, you know, very cordial and very nice, but he doesn't like to do interviews and he really doesn't like to sign autographs. Uh, but he is, he is so uh, genuinely an icon. And, and I'm not talking about just basketball. Everything that he did uh, with respect to and, – and I've heard many names mentioned with the passing of, uh, of Congressman John Lewis in the last week or so uh, about the civil rights movement and all the rest. Well, among athletes, he was right there with Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown as the, the big three of, of their era who uh, stood out front and put it all on the line, risked their careers – and in one case, Muhammad Ali risked going to jail uh, and losing his title uh, to, uh, in, for, for obviously the sake of history, for not uh, serving in the Vietnam War, but was also uh, a huge uh, part of the uh, civil rights movement. So Bill Russell would probably be the number one guy. Steve, what a great name to add my little fun list I have here. I'm going to add Bill Russell to that list. So I, I've gotten some wonderful answers to that question, and, and you, you're obviously a contributor with another great name. Uh, Steve, when, you, when historians look back at Steve Rabel, let's just say 100 years from now, you want to be, about, be known more as a pro and college football player, a football broadcaster, or as an Emmy Award-winning broadcast journalist. What would you pick if you had to pick one? What would you what, – what, how do you want historians to most evaluate you as uh, many, many decades from now? Well, well, first of all, if decades from now or 100 years from now, if anybody is even thinking about me, they, they really <laughs> need to get a hobby because that's, <laughs> that's going to be quite a, quite a waste of, uh, of good time. Yeah, um, <laughs> well, and, and listen, I have every reason to be humble. Trust me. Um, I, I'm, I'm it's a, it's a good question though. I, I would, I, hmm. you know what I think I'd like to be best known as, uh, as someone who, who was, uh, of use. And I'll tell you why I, I use those, that term. It's, it's a term that, that, uh, Barack Obama, uh, uses and has used many times, be of use, be useful to others. And I would hope that by all of those things that you just mentioned, being a professional a college and professional football player, being a football broadcaster, uh, being a, a news anchor uh, and, and the like, those have just been the platforms for me to be able to do what really is important, I think, uh, in our world today, and that is to find a way to give back and be of use in the community, uh, be of use for charitable organizations, for your church, your family. Um, find a way that you can make your life something more than being all about you. And if you can do that, then you will find, I believe, a, a great inner peace and an inner happiness. Uh, but you'll also find that there are a million things that you can do and, and you can be of assistance and be help to people. So that's probably what I would hope that they'd say is that, you know, this guy, we saw him at all these events and he helped and whenever he could. And, and uh, that's, that to me would be most important. Need answer. Paul Shamig on sports and stuff with, uh, with Steve Rabel. 
Steve, uh, I'm going to kind of shift gears for a minute. Do you like the Seahawks uh, trade getting Jamal Adams? I really do, and that's and that's taking absolutely nothing away um, from you know the, the the rest of the draft choices who will be you know coming to Seattle or in that case not coming to Seattle. It's not taking anything away from Bradley McDougal. I think he's just a terrific guy and a, and a great player. But you know how many times, Paul? First of all, the Seahawks never will have an opportunity to draft in the number six position because they're never going to lose enough games to, to be in that spot. So to be able to draft a guy that went that high in the top 10 of the draft a few years ago, that lets you know what kind of player he is. He is a game changer. And he, is, he I think, will be as close to what Cam Chancellor was uh, for us back in the glory days of uh, 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, uh, when the Seahawks were winning consistently and were in two Super Bowls, two uh, consecutive Super Bowls. I just think he's he can do it all and then some. I mean, no no defensive back has had more sacks in the last three years. Uh, he's got a, a bushel basket full of tackles, interceptions. He can play all over the field, at the line of scrimmage, deep in the middle of the secondary. I, I just think – and he really wants to be here. You know, he was interviewed the other day and said, I, I hope to retire here. Heck, he's just in his – coming into his fourth season, he's already talking about, when I retire, I want it to be in Seattle. So it's going to take a lot of money on the next contract to get him to stay. But that said, I think it was a great move. And I think it will really help shore up uh, the secondary a little bit. And, uh, and also, you know, our pass rush, our run defense, all those things will, will be helped. Yeah, so there's been some, some of the critics feel maybe the Hawks gave up too much to get Jamal. You, you see it differently, Steve. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to give up something to get something. Um, first of all, you don't know what the salary cap is going to be next year. Oh, you're pretty certain it's going to be lower than it is now. This year it was $198 million. Uh, next year it's probably going to be in the $175 million range. So right away, you know, you're talking about having to sign guys with less money. So there's and, – and you're talking about then giving up a first-round draft choice that would cost you first-round money next year. And a few years down the road, you're talking about renegotiating a, a first-round draft choice like that uh, contract. Um, I, you know, I just think for all the right reasons, again, John will find a way to get to move up if he needs another second uh, round pick or another third. But, you know, John does his best drafting between the fourth and seventh round. Right. So uh, I fully expect that he'll be active there. We'll go into the draft next year with 10 or 11 draft picks like he always does. He'll find a way to, to bank some of those picks. Uh, and even without a first, you can look at Jamal Adams as your first rounder for the next, <coughs> excuse me, for the next two or three seasons. He will still be better than just about anybody you could pick coming out of college, especially if you're picking in the 25th, 28th, 30th spot like the Seahawks always do. Well, you, you gave, definitely gave some perspectives. Steve, um, you play in the NFL. You're an NFL broadcaster. You have a very unique perspective on this. Where, where are you on the idea of the NFL playing during the pandemic this fall? Where, where, where does Steve Rabel come out on that? There's obviously so much debate in the sports world and the world of schools and everything. Where are you on, on, on the NFL playing this fall? Well, I'm, I'm, probably, I'm, probably more, uh, I'm probably more behind the NFL playing than I am college football. And I'll tell you why. First of all, e even though everybody talks about college football, well, it's just kind of a big business. 
It is, but it is also student athlete. And I happen to agree. The the NCAA said a while back that there would probably be no football if, in fact, uh, there were no students back on campuses. And it doesn't look like students are going to be on campus anytime soon, pretty much anywhere in the country. So I would feel I feel much less positive about the the college game uh, being able to go forward. Pros are pros. These guys, it's their business. Uh, they also have an opportunity to opt out if they really don't feel that they should be playing. And several of them have family situations, have extended family, perhaps living with them, parents, grandparents, young children that they just don't want to take that chance. And they will get, you know, a stipend for this season if they decide to sit out. But also, I think the, the NFL is, is taking just about every possible precaution you can take. Uh, that doesn't mean it's going to be successful. Um, Buffalo Bills reported to camp a couple of days ago, and five rookies tested positive right away. So the real issue is going to be once you get them there, and if they all, everybody tests negative, coaches, players, staff, all that happens. You get them in the facility. You can go through your, your conditioning period for two weeks. Then you can get out on the field. Then you have to travel to the opening game of the season. Seahawks are going to be in Atlanta for the opener. How well can you prepare for, and I believe the Seahawks will be as prepared or more prepared than anybody in the league for that travel situation. Can you keep guys away from anybody who may have the infection? That's going to be the toughest thing. Young guys are going to be tough to corral, keeping, you know, stay in your apartment. You can't go out and visit friends. You're going to have to stay put, study your playbook every night, come to practice, be tested almost every day of the week. Uh, can you do that and keep guys safe? If anybody can, the NFL can. The NBA has had a, a good go of it, at least so far. But uh, I, I, I feel okay about them playing. I just wonder if they're going to be able to finish what they start. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Baseball is going through similar issues. Steve, this is probably my last question this segment, and you might get a little chuckle out of this. How would Coach Jack Patera react if a player said he was not comfortable playing during the coronavirus? <laughs> that is a great question um, because I know I practiced with the flu. I practiced with, uh, uh, you know, I was coming back from that concussion uh, and a collapsed lung, and I was working out. I mean, there, there are things that you just have to do because you're a professional football player. Uh, Jack had some rules. He didn't have a lot of rules, actually, but he had some. And one of them was, uh, you know, unless the bone is sticking out of the skin, you better be out there at practice. <laughs> so, uh, but I think, honestly, I think he would understand uh, in, in his own way. I think he would understand that, you know, we're talking about here a pandemic and especially uh, guys that have, uh, have some family situations. Uh, but, uh, you know, he would do his best to convince you that you need to be out on the football field. That's that's your job. I had to ask you about, about Coach Pateri. He was known as a pretty uh, tough guy. Well, Steve, I really appreciate you doing this uh, Rainier Avenue radio uh, interview. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, we can talk about maybe doing a little extra. I really appreciate you doing this. My pleasure, Paul. Thanks for having me. You take care. Bye-bye. Okay.